back on air. Welcome to Once Upon a Time in the Ashes, the podcast that celebrates the English and Australian cricketers who played in only one Ashes test. Arnie Sidebottom, Jonathan Agnew, Murray Bennett and Dave Gilbert were our guests as we dissected the 1985 Ashes in England. Catch up with those episodes on your podcast platform of choice right now. And the odyssey continues as we move into the late 80s and early 90s of Ashes cricket. Keep your eyes peeled and your ears to the ground for incoming episodes with Greg Campbell, John Stevenson, Steve Watkin and Joe Angel. But before we leave the mid-80s behind, we're going to broaden and enhance our cricketing palettes with a special episode celebrating the women's game, specifically the 1984-85 Jubilee series between Australia and England, the only five-test series in the history of the women's game. Our guides for this jamboree of the Jubilee are Anne Mitchell, the manager of the Australian women's cricket team between 1976 and 1988, and, of course, two One Ashes Test Wonders who played their only test against England in that series, Annette Fellows of South Australia and Karen Reid of Western Australia. Of course, it wasn't called the Ashes back then. I didn't think of it as the Ashes because it wasn't called it back then. No, it wasn't referred to the Ashes. It was Australia no. versus Yeah. <laughs> Annette Fellows and Karen Reid there. What are Karen's first memories of the Ashes? when Australia would tour England and we'd get the radio broadcast. I had this little radio and I'd put it, you know, mum would be saying, you've got to be in bed, you've got to be at school tomorrow. And I'd have the radio under my pillow just listening to it. So <laughs> that's how I thought, you know, like I wanted to listen to it and hear what was happening. I think there was the first test match here in Perth in 72. I think it might have been Australia-England at the Wacker. First time we'd hosted a test match. I remember being there as a kid sitting on the boundary line because those days they just had the boundary line. They allowed all the kids to sit right on the grass. And I think someone like Greg Chappell got a tongue and we all ran onto the field. <laughs> so some security guard came out to you lot, get off. And we very quickly scooted back off. And those early Ashes memories fueled her dreams to play cricket for Australia. Oh, yeah, that was one of the things I definitely wanted. I always said I was going to play for Australia, especially growing up as a kid. I mean, how... I didn't know women could play cricket, so saying you're going to play for Australia was a massive pipe dream. There was a, a field which had two cricket wickets, but girls weren't allowed to even step foot on the field. You know, we had to go and play softball. One day they relented, I think, through my perseverance, and I had one game playing against the boys. I think I took three wickets and went over, and that was it. I got banished back to softball and wasn't allowed on the <laughs> oval again. <laughs> but even 12 months before the World Cup, my dad passed away suddenly and he was, you know, he'd been my coach and mentor and that was really quite challenging in a sense that we had lost him. And I remember waking up the next morning, I went out to find mum and I said, oh, it's okay, the World Cup's coming up, I'll make that Australian team. And I sort of walked away from that statement and thought, oh, my God. Anyway, what was a surprise when we did actually get to the World Cup in New Zealand was that the English players just said to the Australian captain, Sharon Treadray, why'd you bring a bunch of kids with you? Because they were all probably 30 to mid-30s odd and we've got this whole five or six of us who were only 22, you know. So they were really quite amazed that we had the goal to be so optimistic that, that we could get success with such a young team. 
And the nerves were certainly jangling towards the end of that World Cup final against England, February 1982 in Christchurch. But then came the run chase and we were in all sorts of trouble. We'd lost a couple of really early wickets and I think I was batting at four, so I was out there really early. And as a 20-year-old, I was just petrified. I was thinking, oh, my God, what are we going to do here? We, you know, we're going to lose. You know, something doesn't happen. And I think Sharon Treadray was up there with me at one point. And I was just thinking, well, we've got to start pushing the runs. And I just I could hear my dad's coaching voice in the back of my head just saying, the ball's there to hit it. Just hit it. Just play your shots and play your game. And I sort of initially I felt like I had lead feet at the crease because of the dire situation we're in. You're just too scared to hit a ball and make a run or whatever. And I just started then to ease up, start to play some shots. And I think it was going quite well, actually. And I went to hit over the infield, but there's a slight breeze and the ball just held up. And I remember Jan Southgate running backwards and she took a really fantastic catch. And I was running down the other end and Sharon Treadray was there and she said, it's all right, you did it was the right shot. It was just a bit unlucky. It just didn't get, and, you know, you need a final and you're still needing God knows how many runs and she's mm-hmm. like giving you praise. I thought, all right, I'm probably so it's probably one of my nervous games I've ever <laughs> played through and then had to sit through at the end. You'd rather be out there. But it was a really great game and England took it up to us. But the uniqueness about that Australian team, that everyone had a role to play and, it was so hard to actually get in final 11. Everyone stood up, the team was in trouble, someone else would stand up. And that's what I can remember from it. Like, it was just quite an extraordinary performance. Australia managed to get over the line, winning by three wickets with only six balls remaining. What was the winning moment like? Oh, just unbelievable. We were just jumping up and down, hugging each other, couldn't wait to get out. I think it was, you know, sometimes, and you hear it quite often in sport, just this massive sense of relief, you yeah. know, that you've done it. Uh, thank God for that. It could have gone the other way and then we would have been miserable, but we were ecstatic. Anne Mitchell was the manager of the women's side for that World Cup win and there were some hairy moments along the way and not just on the field. We once had, when I took the 82 team to New Zealand, we had a fire in the hotel at Christchurch. Anyway, so fire alarm goes off or we, I think we got calls to our rooms as well to check that we'd heard it and that we were moving so I just grabbed, I think I had all their passports and grabbed a tracksuit on or something or other and dashed out to see that they were all down in the street. So I get down and about three or four of them weren't there. And one of them was Rayleigh Thompson. I thought, where the hell is Rayleigh? Uh, she didn't get the call till late and she ended up coming down the steps at the back of the hotel with a group from England. So somehow she'd worked out something was going on. And she walked down with her tracksuit on over her pyjamas and her, because this was very early in the morning, and her kit bag. I said she was the only one that managed to grab or even thought to grab her kit bag. But, of course, I was worried for about 20 minutes until she was discovered. And how did Anne come to be in this role in the first place? The manager, and still when I took on the role, was the sole support staff for the Australian women's cricket team. You did everything, like organised practices and you didn't have a coach, you didn't have a physio, looked after the medical side, often running off to take someone to hospital or a physio or whatever. It was 1977 that I took over and what had happened, Lorna Thomas had held the position for probably 10 years before me. She was an MBE 
And then she did her last tour in 76. Now, I, meanwhile, had been cutting my teeth on playing for New South Wales. I played for the Australian team in 1975. From there on, I could see I was going to be a fringe player and that I'd be lucky to get in. I was a fast bowler and people like uh, Sharon Treadray and Rayleigh Thompson were ahead of me. So I thought, how can I hang around this game? When the opportunity came up, I thought, all right, I'm going for it. Now, they were a little bit dubious about it. I had one of the board members from the Australian Women's Cricket Council take me aside and say, and they're a bit worried that you're the same age as some of the players, you know, and will they respect you and so on. Uh, I think I was about 32 at the time. And I said, mm -hmm. yes, uh, I believe I can do it and I want to do it, you know. I don't see, foresee any problems that way. Lorna gave me a notebook and a pen and said, just keep that in your handbag because you've got to keep notes on everything. That was my only induction and off I went. There hadn't been a series against the Poms since 1976, a three-match drawn series. So the 1984-85 to 85 series was eagerly anticipated. The most important thing about it was the historic nature of it. It was called the Jubilee Series here, commemorating, as I say, 50 years since the first women's test match. We created a Peden Archdale trophy for play between us. Now, I was thinking about it, and I have no idea where that trophy is now, but that was created for this series in particular. It was the first five test series we had to go to every major cricketing state in Australia. Margaret Peden had died just a few years before the first test, but Betty Archdale, the England captain, was there to toss the coin. So that was a wonderful mark. I think the historic nature of it and the functions we held around it were focusing on that. That first test was dedicated to Margaret Peden. The fourth test in New South Wales was dedicated to Ruth Preddy, who was involved in setting up the International Women's Cricket Council and had helped finance the first 1934 test when England came out to Australia. So those two special tests dedicated to those special women made it something very particular. I think in the West, that first, once we got there, as I say, we were looking forward to this huge series, but there'd been no real preparation as far as I can remember. It was just in the nets beforehand. Then we got out in the ground and, my God, you know, we had Avril Starling and Jan Southgate and people playing and they were, that seemed to be at the top of the game. They had a few warm-up matches. With the Jubilee series starting in Perth, those warm-up games were against a WA side led by Karen Reid. Yeah, I was the captain of WA when we were playing them. We actually beat them 2-1 and had it not been for a, a last ball, not misfield, but placement, we probably should have actually gone 3-0. We played exceptionally well there against England. I know they'd just arrived and everything, but they were putting their, they wanted their players in form. The other side of it, Western Australia, our team, we brought in some of the younger players as well. So our performance was fantastic. But despite this success, Karen had to bide her time to earn her call-up for the series. 
the women's test match, 84-85, which started here in Perth, obviously went down there, wasn't selected, and watched that. And Karen was probably as tense in the stands as Anne Mitchell was behind the scenes. England was in the ascendancy during that first test, which left Australia trying to hang on for the draw. Once the it got so close at the end, where it came down to, and none of us were sure, it came down to do they finish at 5.30 or do they play out a number of overs? Now, I all I remember is running up and down the steps of the Wackard ground, trying to find someone, an expert who could tell me this. In the end, the umpires called it at 5.30, but that saved us. We just were in a mess and only had so many uh, runs up our sleeve, you know, to get, but we'd run out of batters to, to do it. And that wasn't the only problem facing Anne Mitchell. There was also the injury to captain and star player Sharon Treadray. Anyway, a traumatic time because the captain's injury. I think it was her Achilles heel. Rayleigh Thompson wasn't keen to take it on. But she did because they told her she was the most experienced senior player. She's not a person who who really likes the leadership role like that for some reason, and yet she's got a tremendous um, brain strategy of the game is something she's really interested in. But I think she thought the young ones and those that were a bit more popular or something might have been better. But on this particular occasion, I know she was reluctant but then she took it on with some enthusiasm. By this stage in her career, she was in her 30s, so she was sensing that, you know, this was the end. But then she took on the challenge. It was fantastic. And she spoke to Peter Carlstein. We had meetings. We talked about strategies and things like that. And she was prepared to go on to Adelaide. Yes, it was onwards to Adelaide for the second test. We only had a couple of changes in the team because of Sharon's injury. I think Karen Price was brought into the team and then Annette Fellows was brought in because she was from South Australia and would know the Oval there well. As I was just talking to a friend of mine, the most exciting thing was to me was, number one, I got to play at Adelaide Oval. Had my name up on the, well, we all did, but for me, you know, the name up on the uh, old scoreboard, the Heritage Listed scoreboard, that was just as exciting (laughs) as anything really but it it was more about that that the opportunities to play on those iconic kind of grounds I suppose. And when we got to Adelaide you know it started well. Rayleigh did not win a toss during the series. She did not win a toss. Jan Southgate won it every time and Jan usually chose to bat. So Jan batted and they were all out for 91. So we all thought ah new captain and everything and we're on the way and then our openers did well. I think uh, Denise Emerson scored a, a century, opening up with Peter Verko. They were a key opening pair for us during this season series. But the middle order failed. <laughs> and uh, we still had a chance. But here was a case where I was out with someone who was injured, and I can't remember who it was now. And we came back to find that our whole batting side had collapsed. You know, the bowlers were trying to hang on at the end. But um, England had managed to win, I think it was by five runs. And they invited us into the dressing room, their dressing room at the end to have a drink. And I don't think our team were very happy about it, actually. The general feeling was one of devastation, maybe. But 
I think we believe we should have won it and to come away with only that, I think everyone was a bit um, down as such and that's probably why the selectors had to make some decisions about the team because they had it was a, a game that should have been won and they, and we lost. I do, yeah, I do remember that, that there was that feeling of one that got away sort of thing. Annette made a credible 25 in the first innings, but when she was out for a duck in the second, Australia was reeling at six for five, or five for six in Australian parlance. Either way, a calamitous start, which made the targets of 126 seem a long, long way away. But a battling effort by the lower middle order, including 51 from Karen Price and 28 from 123 deliveries from Lynn Fulston, almost saw Australia home. Lynn Fulston, or Lefty, as she was called. She was very determined. She was, that's why she would have done well in that situation. She was a very determined cricketer. She was no way were they going to beat, like, beat her. <laughs> she would have loved that situation. She was one of the most determined um, cricketers I think I've met. She was, she was fantastic. She wouldn't let you get away with, if, she, if there was a game to be won or saved, she'd be doing it. But it was England who secured victory and the mood in the Australian camp was not great as the selectors wielded the axe. Annette being one of the players surplus to requirements for the third test. The other interesting thing about that was it was on Christmas Eve. Players were dropped. The selectors got the axe to the team. And I think we had five changes for the third test. And I had a team of girls. I'd been out and bought them some fun things for Christmas, but they were not in the least interested. They were just <laughs> casting slander on the <laughs> selectors. <laughs> oh, dear. It was, it was a horrible time. After a drawn game in the third test at Brisbane, Australia were in a hole, one down with two to play. Then we went to Gosford for the fourth test. Now, Gosford's a lovely country area of New South Wales, but they had to win this one, the Aussies, because um, England were one up from Adelaide. They'd had the two draws. They just had to win going into the last one or it would have put too much pressure. What my memory of this one is that Chris Matthews injured herself, she's the wicketkeeper, while they were warming up. So I was dashing her off to a hospital or somewhere to get that attended to. We got back in time for Chris to take the field, obviously. We got going and did fairly well. And Rayleigh in this game, this is where her decisions to declare overnight and so I'm pushed England into having to do something, you know. That I praise her for because some of the other captains at the time were just happy to see out a draw or something, but Rayleigh was determined to win it. It was the first Australian win over England in 33 years. Everyone was really happy. I've seen a picture of the team coming off and I could see Chris Matthews and all those in the field jumping up and down. They were, they were thrilled. And uh, it took them in this very positive way into the final test. Onwards to the final test, the decider. And it was time for Karen Reid to enter the fray. The only sort of issue that I had had really was while well, I was a little bit rustic was that the grade competition had stopped over summer, so I'd be there was no competitive cricket that I was playing. They were picking 
the team, the test teams from grade cricket then because there wasn't a national series before it. So it was all just who was in form at the time. And that era that I went through, if you weren't getting runs or weren't taking wickets, you were just dropped. and You weren't dropped totally out of it, but you had to then come back. I mean, that was typical of World Cup selections. Like if you fail once, you're gone, you know, like don't fail. (laughs) It was scary, but, I, you know, it was motivating. So, right, yes, I am here to do a job and they mean... They want you in the team, but you've got to show that you deserve to be in the team. So they didn't mess around with it much. And I think that was the same call that they were putting on the test teams. You know, quite a lot of players played through that series. And I was quite shocked because I thought, well, they're not going to pull me back in now, you know, like, and they did. And I was obviously thrilled to get the opportunity, pack your bags and get over there. This fifth and final test was held in Bendigo at the Queen Elizabeth Oval a rather fitting venue for this Jubilee series. Yeah, sort of, I guess, typical sort of little country grounds that they do have sometimes. If I can recall it, you know, there's a a really nice old stand and picket fence. And, you know, the local Bendigo community got out and came along and and did support it. And it was, you know, it was a good treat for them, I think, to see some first-class cricket and for us to be able to play in front of probably a little bit bigger crowd than had been hanging around for some time. They batted first and scored 196. That was the um, innings where Rayleigh starred with the ball. This particular series saw Rayleigh drop a little bit her speed but use more of her while uh, in becoming a medium pacer and doing more with the ball. When she first opened for Australia with Sharon Tredier, they were the most feared pace attack in the world for their speed and their accuracy and so on. But Rayleigh in this one, as I say, in her 30s, she's using more of her wiles and so on to get wickets, and she certainly did it in that first innings where they took five wickets. So... Everything's going along all right. Yeah, the whole game was very tight, very close, as it always is. I think by that time as well, both teams had had a good measure across each other about strength and weaknesses and things, and that certainly does make a difference. But a major spanner was about to be dropped into the Australia works. We were going along all right. It was seesawing a bit between the two teams. But was it the second last night or the day three was where this illness struck the crew? Well, this is where I came into action again as manager. So I forget who came to me first, but someone was ill. So what I did was always the girls were room two in a room, was send the one who was well up to my room and that was Rayleigh, actually. She's complained about it since, I remember now. So she was sent to my room and I stayed down with the sick person. But then, because everyone knew that was the manager's room, when the others got sick, they were all coming knocking on Rayleigh's door in the middle of the night saying, oh, such and such is vomiting, you have to come and do something. So she said she got no sleep. The next day we, we did feel a bit wiped out and the person who I found helped to calm it all was Peter Carlstein. I went into the dressing room and he was talking to people like Jill Kinnear and Karen Reid and others who had to bat. He was talking calmly to them. Well, this is the situation. We're just going to have to do our best and get through it as best we can. But it was an outstanding time. And anyone who took part in that test will remember, I think one of the umpires got the illness. It was obviously food poisoning. And a couple of the England girls did too. 
but it just seemed to hit us really strong. Sometimes we ate together and had team dinners. Sometimes we didn't. Sometimes we just let people go with their friends or something and have dinner and just come back and we'd have a team meeting when they got back. But I think those people must have all eaten at the same place. But certainly it wasn't all of us. But it, it was a memorable day. Lynn Larson was the other one who couldn't field there again. So Rayleigh had to do a lot of the bowling, a couple of the people, you know, because these people couldn't get on the field. And when it came to the batting, they just had to hold up their head and do as best they could and not take any risky runs. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to, I think it was, I don't know, we, we got food poisoning. Might have been, might have gone out somewhere and just food poisoning. Some of us got crook. And the funny side of that was, where we were staying was across the road, so we could just pick up our bags and walk across. So when we were feeling a little bit better, you know, like it was just before lunch, I think, on whatever day it was, you know, chucked on the trackie and wandered across the road. And the guy at the gate said, ticket, and we went, no, we're playing. Said, no, you need a ticket to get in to the game. I said, no, we're in the Australian team, and he wouldn't let us in. It was just quite hilarious. And in the end, we said, look, this is our bag and everything. He, he just didn't, I don't know, just didn't seem to, to believe us. But anyway, eventually got in, but he wasn't going to let us in. So I don't know how many were sick. I know definitely it was two of us. It might have been three, I think, got quite crook. But I just remember being really feeling really crook in the morning, then sort of getting to the game. It felt just awful. And, yeah. you know, the only reason, like, going across to the ground, I thought, well, we better get there. They're going to, you know, they're going to be short. Got through probably the worst of it, but... Whatever it was, had taken the stuffing out of us. Karen was there in the middle when the series, the Ashes, if I may, were won. But did she hit the winning runs? And I reckon I possibly did hit the winning runs because I thought this is a big irony that I haven't been here. Why should I have the yeah. honour of getting these runs, you know? That ran through my head, so I probably suspect, yes, I maybe did hit the winning run after all that five test snatches and, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just do remember it was had been high pressure that test and it was just again just one of those oh, what a relief yeah. done it got the ashes one but following the sickness bug the celebrations were slightly muted i think the team because it was so washed out i really can't remember us celebrating very much at that time we we're probably just packing up and getting people back to beds and things like that actually after the game, and I just like have a champagne. <laughs> oh my god, let's knock me out! Yeah, lay down, yeah. Put the towel on my head. For the record, Australia won that fifth test by seven wickets, chasing down their targets of 116 in 50 overs. Jill Kinnear followed up her century in the first innings with 42 in the second, but when she was run out, it was down to Karen and Lindsay Reeler to see Australia home. And yes, Karen did hit those match and series winning runs. How does Karen look back on the series and that era of women's cricket in general? Oh, look, it was just amazing, really. Yeah, the fact that there was no coverage or anything and no, no one was a household name. But the reality is you're still playing cricket for your country and you're playing cricket against other countries in different formats, test matches and the one dayers. And I mean, I think anyone who plays or represents Australia in whatever form, you've got to say, well, they're at the peak of their game. It should be recognised. And I think I certainly feel that during all of those, that year, that period of time, that so many people continued to work hard for women's cricket and, you know, people had not done the hard yards that may not have 
continue to build and get the foundation. So yeah, I'm really proud to have had the opportunity and to have represented Australia. It's nice when it is recognised because you know, a lot of people nowadays seem to think, well, women's cricket's just suddenly appeared out of yeah. nowhere. And it hasn't. It's got a good history. It's got a great history. It's got a mm. grand history. And, you know, this conversation here is a part of that history and um, it needs to be, needs to get out there to say, the foundations of what was built upon and there have been some great Ashes series and there have been magnificent World Cups. I mean, women hosted, organised and sorted out the first World Cup. It was Rachel Hayho Flint who, mm. you know, English great, who got that set up, you know. So women in cricket have done amazing things for the game, you know, just hope that continues maybe through history to be um, recognised and promoted yeah. In Western Australia, we've just recently, albeit two years later because of COVID, but we've just celebrated the 90th anniversary of women's cricket in Western Australia. And when you look back at the pioneers of the game who started it and they went through a world war where everything was stopped and they'd get some mm. momentum, then it would, they lost time in the world war and they had to start up again. And all these stories about yeah. women in cricket are amazing. And it's got, a, as I said, it's got an amazing history, a colourful history a history rich in amazing players and calibre of the players, you know, like when we talk about Set Sharon Treadway or Rayleigh Thompson, they were really quick bowlers, really quick, quicker than today's. I, I, I seriously go watch, you know, some of the bowlers today, they, I, they were quicker, you know, you know, and, and we need to make sure that that continues to be a legacy of cricket. I was inducted into the WA Gallery of Greats at the WACA. I was only the second woman to be inducted into that. The first woman was the founder of the competition, Ollie Leslie, who was responsible at the beginning for getting, you know, women's cricket up and running in Western Australia. So I was the second, only second female to go into there. So that was a really great honour um, mm -hmm. to have because I guess I spread myself right across really on the field and off the field. Um, I did a lot of work probably, and to be quite honest, at the end of the day, if there was one thing I may do different is probably not do as much as I did off the field, but it was the sign of the times, I could. So if you don't mm. keep building the foundations here, you know, the next generation of kids may not have a team to play for. And so I probably sacrificed some of my own personal play. I wasn't selfish in a sense. I sort of viewed the whole of cricket as opposed to just my individual pathway. And how does Annette Fellows look back, especially given the increased media attention and coverage that the women's game is given today? You kind of smile sometimes and think, oh, I wish we had that sort of thing. There's no bitterness. I think it's just great that it's out there. Um, I look back on, I just had a great time. Cricket was, you know, and because I was not only a player, but I did basically everything, you know, I coached and worked in administration and was a selector in the state and all those, um, and worked with kids at schools and stuff. It just was a really big part of my life for from 16 to 47 I think it was or even longer than that so yeah it was a big part of my life and made lots of friends and had great times and you know the game itself I don't I think I achieved as much as I could have achieved at that time so yeah and even now I still love the game and you know go mm. and watch men and women so as much as I can so yeah. it's just it's been a really big part of my life and I've really enjoyed every minute of it. It's, I, I wouldn't take anything back that I did back then or wish I'd done anything more. I mean, you can always wish, I suppose, but yeah, no, I just, I just loved it. 
and some long overdue recognition has been forthcoming for Annette and Karen. I don't know if you know Christina Matthews, who's she's currently CEO of the WACA. We're at this 90th anniversary thing. She came along and she she when the Australian players now get their baggy green, that mm. it's given to them in a bag, you know. So we were given eventually, it took a long time to get a baggy green. Originally we just had this silly old cat. And so we did play with baggy green. But then she went off and just got us this, you know, lovely bag. And so things like that are sort of coming back as they're trying to say, well, there's a really strong history here and let's recognise it, all the people who are involved with it. So this is about two months old that, yeah, she got that for us. So that was one of the West Australian players who represented Australia in Test cricket. And, you know, it's not many. It's only 13 from Western Australia played for Australia in Test match cricket. So that's pretty nice. Retrospectively, we were given baggy greens and uh, a number. So that was done, like, since it's become part of the men's, since it's uh, grown in in um, popularity, publicity, whatever the word is, we were given retrospectively baggy greens, which I have up on my wall at home. Blazers and uniforms and stuff like that, I, I haven't got that. But, yeah, no, we were given baggy greens and a number. And that probably means as much as... Any memorabilia, you know, baggy green. So, no, I think that was really good. Some of them today, like Riley says, oh, I wish I could be out there now, paid to play. That could be my job, you know, fantastic. But I think we just sat back and said, it's been a long, hard road. But to see this, this is what, it was It was my dream, definitely. I wanted it to be a family game, a game that everyone would come to see and we'd achieved it, you know, and that the players get their recognition now. Like they used to just come back into the country and you'd be lucky if anybody acknowledged them or took their photo or anything, you know. Great sentiments there from Anne Mitchell and those baggy greens are fitting accolades for Annette and Karen. They both graced the game and were part of a five-match test series at its finest, seesawing from team to team and keeping the result alive until the final day. Tense run chases, low-scoring thrillers, Australia with the spoils after being one down with two to play. It's why we love the game, isn't it? And you know what? I'm with Anne Mitchell. Anything between Australia and England is known as the Ashes, so you might as well go with the flow. If you've enjoyed this episode, there's plenty more content to explore and enjoy. I'll put the full interview with Karen Reid on the YouTube channel, search for Once Upon a Time in the Ashes, And look out for clips, photos and press cuttings on my Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages and on the website onceuponatimeintheashes.com. A big thank you to Annette Fellows, Anne Mitchell and Karen Reid for their memories and guiding us through this incredible series and their trailblazing careers. The best of times. The CEO of Papua New Guinea Cricket awaits you on the next episode. Until then, I've been Graham Barrett and this has been Once Upon a Time in the Ashes.